So I'm the youth pastor here. Um, yay. I love it. It's, it's my dream job. And I love youth ministry in part because of the impact that it had on me when I was growing up. And I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many of us grew up going to youth group or go in the youth ministry? Okay, a lot of us. So you kind of know what I'm saying when I say that it's a very impactful time and a lot is happening in your life when you're young. And there's a lot that's changing, right? There's a whole lot that's changing. There's a lot you're learning about yourself. There's a lot you're learning about the world. And so youth ministry for me was so vital to that time. It was a time to help me filter my experiences, understand what I was going through, have people that I loved being around speak truth into my life. I've got a picture of me just after my eighth grade year. Uh, and you can see some changes taking place. Some change needed to take place. Thank you, Lord, for the change that took place. Uh, this was, if you can kind of see, it's a little dark. This was my, my go-to hairstyle, the way I did this was uh, I would wet my hair in the morning, and then I would just shake my head violently, and then I would be done. That was it. And so I had these, like, wingtips going out, and I thought that was cool. Uh, Not because anyone told me it was. Everyone said it wasn't. I don't know how I thought it was cool, but that was my style. Uh, And this was also when I was first asked to join a small group Bible study in the youth group, and I loved that. Right? That, was a, that was an impactful time where those changes started to really begin in my life. My mindset about Jesus began to change. I started to understand better his love for me. Uh, and I even just started to realize that there were fun people who believed this stuff. And the Lord started to change me. And that's one of the things that I love about youth ministry is you're watching kids grow up. You're watching them mature. You're watching them develop. Here's another picture of me freshman year of college. Okay, Uh, this is my now wife, Brittany. This is her senior year prom. Uh, This is obviously a much more recent picture, but as I look at this, I'm still aware of how much has changed since this time, right? And all I need to do is look at this picture to realize how much has changed because I remember this night and Brittany said nothing to me about the way I looked. And that's definitely changed, right? I still had the older college student allure going on where she was just you know, happy to be around me. And uh, I think if I came home with that haircut now, she would be like, see you in two weeks when your hair grows out, right? It's like now I, I, you know, I'll put on a shirt I like, we're going out, and she's like, please not that one. I'm like, what? I like this one. It's like, not, not where we're going, please. She's like, all right. So, you know, I can tell just by looking at this picture how much has changed, right? Things change. We change, not just spiritually, but physically, emotionally, in all sorts of ways, right? Even as our surroundings change, 20-year-old Cameron is very different from 28-year-old Cameron. A lot's changed. I don't eat, you know, bagel bites and SpaghettiOs for every meal. I eat them less now. Um, I don't have any more days where it's 3 p.m. before I put pants on, right? That's the college lifestyle, right? So this change, a lot changes. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the importance of pants. No, that's not what we're talking about. I'm just kidding. Uh, sorry, that's the youth pastor in me. Um, we're talking about the science of change. How does the Holy Spirit bring about massive, sweeping change in our lives? Because some change is quick, but other change can be frustratingly slow. And we're looking in Galatians 5 this morning. You can go ahead and open up to there if you have your Bibles. Uh, if you don't, we're going to have the, the verses on the screen here. 
Uh, but I want to set a little bit of the context for this book. This is a letter Paul writes uh, to the Galatians to answer specific problems in the church, as he does in most of his letters. And he's writing against certain agitators, certain false teachers that are, that are preaching this false gospel to the Galatians. This is how he, he starts in, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some people who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And Paul's main issue with these false teachers is they're teaching that the Galatians still need to be under the law. In fact, they're teaching that they still need to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul reminds them the only way to be saved is through Christ. And he says in chapter 5 where we're starting this morning, in verses 1 and 2, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So Paul lays it out clear for them. Christ is the only way we can truly and permanently be made right before God and earn freedom from sin and death. And he calls these believers to remember this freedom. And he gives them some instruction regarding that freedom. That freedom. So we're going to start uh, officially with our text this morning at verse 13. And this is what it says. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So Paul describes this tension that exists between our flesh and our spirits. It's this battle that's waging on inside believers. And if you look on at verse 16 with me, he says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, walking by the Spirit is the key to change. That's the key to how we see the Holy Spirit change our lives. And the first step that Paul gives us to walk by the Spirit is to battle the flesh. And notice in verse 16 here, notice what Paul does not say. Okay, he does not say that if you walk by the Spirit, then the desires of your flesh vanish. Right? And when he talks about flesh we understand that he's not talking about skin and bones, right? This is not the issue he's talking about. He's talking about the innate sinful desires that exist in us because of the fall, right? What it means to be human in a fallen world. When we believe that Jesus rose from the grave, when we profess faith in the gospel, say that his death, that he died for the penalty of sin counts for us, we become a new creation, The old is gone and the new has come. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So we know that we have been made new. And we know that because scripture tells us that. But what's clear in this passage and important for us as believers to understand 
is that being made new now does not mean that our fleshly desires disappear. Paul says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So what we can infer from what he's saying there is that it's possible for us as believers to not walk according to the Spirit. So Paul paints this clear picture of this battle, this will of the flesh and the will of the Spirit at battle within believers. This is a battle that's waging on inside of each and every one of us right now in this very moment. It's why I can listen to an awesome sermon from Aaron and feel pumped up and feel the love of Jesus and know that I want to do nothing but glorify him, hop in my car, drive two minutes down the road, get cut off by some guy without his blinker and lose it, right? And it's never, there's never a blinker. I mean, it's one or the other. Please, if you're going to cut me off, use your blinker, but you're more important than me. You're going somewhere more important. You know, I'm not bitter about it. It's not something I'm holding on to at all, right? Um... That's, that's this picture, right? We're, we're in this time period where we're already new, but we're not yet finished. Sanctification is still taking place within us. This desire of the flesh exists in us, and it wants to act out, and it will try to act out again in every single one of us. A huge part of changing, a huge part of being sanctified is being aware of this desire and being willing to fight against the flesh when it does act out. The flesh, and if you're anything like me and your experience, you know this, it acts often first, it acts quickly, right? And so I think a big part of spiritual maturity is being aware in your head of that battle at all times and being able to stop the flesh when it wants to act out. And what's amazing when we become believers is that we have aid in that battle, right? We have the Holy Spirit who we can use fighting alongside us. Um, I was talking on the phone not so long ago with my boss, one of our pastors here, Brian Radabaugh, and he told me uh, something that I've held on to and I've actually used in my own life. And uh, what he told me is that he's, he's been in the middle of an argument, a confrontation, you know, where, where someone's upset with him or he's upset with someone, and he's actually prayed in his head in the very middle of a conversation, Lord, please, Spirit, please hold my tongue right now. Right? That's what spiritual maturity looks like. Battling the flesh requires minute-by-minute minute vigilance and effort. That's why we can't do it on our own. That's why we have to walk by the Spirit, right? We have to rely on Him or we will lose to our flesh. My dad used to box some, uh, I think just like as a hobby. And he would tell me when I was younger that the hardest part of boxing is actually just keeping your hands up. Because as you do it, you get physically exhausted. Your whole body is tired. You're throwing punches. You're blocking punches. And the hardest part just becomes keeping your hands in front of your face because you're wearing these heavy gloves. As you get physically exhausted, all you want to do is just drop your hands. That's the last thing you can do. Why? Because you're going to get punched in the face, right? You keep your hands up to defend yourself, right? And we keep our hands up in this fight against the flesh 
by being proactive with the Spirit. You keep your hands up by knowing the Spirit's presence in your life, remembering it, believing it's there, relying on it. Let's look at some of the punches Paul talks about the flesh throwing at us. Verse 19, he says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now some commentators will break these works of the flesh down into four categories. We've got a slide with these four categories. And for time's sake this morning, I want to jump straight to the third category. If we look at all of these categories just for a second, you can tell which one is clearly on Paul's mind the most as he's writing the church in Galatia, right? The relational aspect, he has eight examples for us, right? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, All of this has to do with our relationships around us, our relationships with the people in our lives. It's all flying directly in the opposition of the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to be talking about. And the most important thing I want to say about this is that every single one of these character traits begins with thinking more highly of ourselves than we do of others. Our relationships with people matter a lot. Your your relationships with other people tell you a lot about your spiritual health. Your whole relational history or your life will tell you a lot about your spiritual health. And one thing that's sad but true is that we see a lot of these, right? Thinking specifically of strife, of rivalry, of dissension, of division. We see a lot of that in the church, don't we? A lot. Uh, in the history of the church, right? And I want to address that in light of the next verse. In the next verse, Paul gives us the fruit of the Spirit. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And notice here, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is... Right? He's not saying the fruits of the Spirit are these things. These things collectively are the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, we're not to work on these traits individually. To overemphasize these individual traits is actually dangerous, I think. I think that's one of the issues with the church, why we see so much strife, why we see so much division, why we see so much rivalry, right? Not necessarily in the church at broad, but maybe more specifically in the legalistic, right? Because some people take these individual traits and they create a checklist for themselves and for others. They take the works of the flesh. They say, I did this today. I did that today. That person did that. That wasn't good. That person did this. That wasn't good, but I did this. So I'm doing better than that person, right? When you create that kind of a checklist and you treat these traits individually, you're just asking your brain to think more highly of yourself than others, which we know is the root of a lot of these issues. And on top of that, you're missing Paul's point here. He says the fruit of the Spirit is these traits collectively together 
appearing in your life. That's a sign that the Spirit is at work in you. So the fruit of the Spirit is not about picking yourself up by the bootstraps and working on each of these traits individually. It's actually really just the opposite. The way we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as we submit ourselves to the will of the Spirit. That's how we build these traits up. Submit to the Spirit. Paul's use of fruit as an illustration to help us think about these things is is really significant and important, and a lot of commentators talk about what that means. One of our students, Connor Radabaugh, um, he loves to garden, and it's really impressive to me. I got to see it recently when I went to Kylie Radabaugh's graduation. Yay, Kylie. She graduated high school. Um, And if you're wondering why I'm talking about the Radabaugh so much, it's because I'm trying to get a raise, but... It's really, truly impressive what Connor's done with his garden. He's growing tomatoes, he's growing grapes, blueberries, right? He's growing potatoes, and he's got it all set up. He's tilled the soil, he's put the right soil down, he waters it, he does all these things. And what it's told me, what it's shown me is it takes a lot of work to grow fruit, right? There's a lot that goes into it. You've got to get the right amount of sun, you've got to get right, the right amount of water. This whole thing called photosynthesis has to happen, which I, I know I understood at one point for a test a long time ago and forgot two minutes after I finished that test and don't remember at all now. But I know it's important and it has to happen. There's a lot that goes in to growing fruit. And an important question to ask as we think about growing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, is it Connor that makes this fruit grow? Of course not, right? He has a lot to do with it, but ultimately none of us are in control of this huge ball of energy, for example, in the sky, or how much of that energy this plant takes in, or how much of this water the plant soaks up, right? Or the genetics of that plant that make it grow into what it grows, that make it grow the fruit that it grows, or the whole process of photosynthesis, whatever that is, right? There's a lot of things that happen that need to happen that we have no control of whatsoever. So what is the takeaway for us as Paul uses fruit to describe these traits that appear in our lives. Why fruit? And I think there's two big things we can take away. The first is that we have work to do, right? We have a role to play. We're the gardener. We're tilling the soil. We're watering, right? We're planting the seeds. We're doing all these things. But ultimately, we don't make the actual growth happen. So one big way that we submit to the Lord is to do the preparation. It's to prepare the garden. It's to you know, toil, it's to, it's to prepare the soil, right? To till the soil, right? It's to water, and then it's ultimately to rely on the Spirit and trust Him. A big way that we submit to the Spirit is preparing the room in our lives for Him to grow. So what do these things look like practically? Tilling the soil, spreading the seed, watering. It's soaking in God's Word, right? It's spending time in prayer. It's being in church community. God's word is a vital, vital tool to this battle against the flesh and to understanding how we submit to the spirit and what it looks like. God's word is vital to both of those things. It is our most reliable offensive weapon. 2 Corinthians 10 3 through 6, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, we're not going to meet it on its own terms and do battle there. He says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. He's talking about this battle against the flesh and the spirit going on in our own personal lives, in our own heads. He says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. We all have these sinful thoughts running around in our heads. And the word of God has the power to enter in to our minds, to our hearts, to our lives, and speak truth into even sinful strongholds that have been there for years and years, maybe since we've been born. Right? We have these kinds of thoughts. We have these kinds of issues. And the word of God is a weapon that comes in and it actually cuts down, it confronts those things and speaks truth into them. But we have to let it in to do that. My mom, she showed me this incredible book. Uh, She's here this morning. Hi, mom. Thanks for supporting me so well. I love you. And it's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And it's written by this tenured Syracuse professor. She's incredibly smart. She's an excellent writer. I really, really recommend the book highly. Uh, and she's, she's got this fascinating career. She's successful. She's, she's a very, very liberal person. She's in a long-term relationship with another woman. And Jesus gets a hold of her life. And she talks about this transformation that happens. And one of the things she talks about is the power of the word of God in her life. I've paraphrased some of this, but I want to read all this. It's a little long, but I think it speaks well to this power that the word of God has in our life. She says, when Christ gave me the strength to follow him, my feelings about my relationship didn't change. I've discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings until I obey him. During one sermon, Ken, and this is this pastor who started to engage with her, started to send her emails, started to love on her and tell her about the gospel. And she says, during one sermon, Ken pointed to John 7, 17, which says, if anyone is willing to do God's will, then he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Aha, here it was. Obedience comes before understanding. I wanted to understand, but did I actually will to do God's will? God promised to reveal this understanding to me if I willed to do his will. Well, I knew I didn't. In my case, my relationship was familiar, it was comfortable, recognizable, and I was reluctant to give all that up. I clung to Matthew 16, 24, remembering that every believer had to, at some point in life, take the step that I was taking, giving up the right to myself, taking up his cross, and following Jesus. The Lord made it clear to me that I had to make some serious life changes. This is the power of God's word. When we cling to it, it enters our brains, it enters our hearts and preaches truth even when we don't want to hear it. Especially when we don't want to hear it. That's when we need it the most. The second way we prepare room for the spirit, prayer. James 1.5, right? I could have picked any of a dozen verses. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generally to all without reproach and it will be given him. I want to just speak quickly to experience I had recently with freedom prayer, which is something that we're talking about here at Dallas Bible Church. Pat and Annie Mooney are uh, getting this started at our church and they have some volunteers helping them. They're bringing a lot of training from their last church in this. And we're promoting this to the church body. And so the staff said, hey, we're going to be talking about this and saying it's a good thing to do. So if you're going to tell people to do it, you should probably experience it yourself. And I thought that makes sense. So I signed up and I did it. And it was truly 
uh, a wonderful experience, right? Just to be able to pray. I got to pray with Pat and Joe Fournier. And we just, just the, the freedom to pray with fellow believers who have God's word in their hearts and your best interest in their mind. Right, The freedom to just walk through and talk through whatever it is the Lord's wanting you to work through in that day. And they're trained to sort of get at the roots of those things. And it was an incredible time for me. And it ended with Pat saying, um, just very humbly, I, I, you know, as I've been praying for this camera, I want to I share a word that I think I'm hearing from the Holy Spirit for your life. And he said, that word is power. I'm hearing the Holy Spirit saying he wants to give you power. And you can just take that. And what I immediately knew that to mean you know, it wasn't that I'm going to become a superhero, right? Although I wished. But what I knew immediately that meant was that he's given me the power I already need to defeat the little sins that are in my life. And I've actually recalled Pat saying that to me. That experience, that prayer time, in the midst of just soaking in the word of God, has given me significant power against some of the things that I battle with on a daily basis. That's the power of prayer. And it's not even something that I didn't already know. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of, of power, right? Of love and of a sound mind. That's something I know, and yet just to hear Pat say it, to have that experience of prayer, right? It's given me power. Prayer is a necessity if we want the Holy Spirit to change us. So together, these things, time in the Word, time in prayer, they create this environment in our lives that the Holy Spirit needs to produce change, to produce the fruit of the Spirit. But one big danger to any garden is weeds, right? Weeds can grow up. They grow up. They choke out what's there. They steal nutrients. They steal water from what you're growing, right? And I've learned this the hard way. It can actually be pretty difficult to tell the difference between what's good and what's bad, right? I have memories of being and sort of trying to help my mom and just ripping everything out that was there because, you know, it can be hard to tell what weeds look like, especially if you haven't been trained, right? How do you get trained? You talk to other gardeners. You talk to other gardeners, right? If you let people into your garden, they can help you. They may actually be able to look around and show you some ways that it can improve. Are you living in real, real church community? Do you have help? What's your approach when a weed shows up in your life? How do we deal with that? Right? Do we cut it off so that the parts that show don't show anymore? That's not right, right? What do we do? We remove it from its root. We get in and we remove the root. You have to go for its roots to kill a weed. So if you are struggling with a long time sin, you know, could be anything. If it's been years and years, right? It could be pornography. It could be alcoholism. It could be anger. If that's something that's continually something you're struggling with, get help, right? Talk to somebody. Show that to someone. Maybe it's Watermark's Regeneration Program. Maybe it's AA. Maybe it's just a friend or someone that you know has your best interest in mind, right? But the way that you deal with weeds is you ask others into that situation to help you identify what is at the root of that sin. Because it's not the sin itself that's the issue, it's the root. And others who have experience can help you identify what's the root in your heart. What's going on there? Right? Don't tell yourself that you can dabble with a certain sin. I have experience with this, right? Thinking, uh, I can, I, I'm just going to do this a little bit so I can control it. 
right? We don't feed weeds even a little bit. You don't have control over that weed, right? You get to its root and you remove it completely. So time in the word, time in prayer, time in church community. These are ways we keep our spiritual hands up in this fight against the flesh. And it's important to train, right? Because we don't know when the flesh is going to strike. And you can get jumped. The flesh is good at biding its time, at taking its opportunity, you know, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you're drained, when you're physically, emotionally, spiritually tired. That's when the flesh strikes. And if you haven't trained, right, if you're walking down the street and you've never trained to defend yourself and someone jumps you, you're in trouble, right? If you've trained, even if you're totally taken by surprise and you have no idea it's coming, if you've trained, your training kicks in, your instincts kick in, your hands come up because you've trained. Uh, the last thing that I want to talk about that enables us to walk by the Spirit, we talked about battling the flesh, submitting to the Spirit. Paul says here in verse 24, it's remember who you belong to. Verse 24, Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So as Paul lays out, this battle between the flesh and the spirit, he also talks about the victory Christ has already assured for each and every one of us over our flesh, for each and every one of us who belong to him. Belonging to Jesus means that you have been made new, right? That you have come alive to that realm of the Holy Spirit. And everything in that realm comes to us through the work of Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's how we have access to that realm. Another way you could say it is Jesus is really the root of all of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Through more of Jesus, we get more of it. I want to give you three examples as we look at Paul's fruit of the Spirit. Love. Right? And what he means by love, it's not an emotion. It's an action. It's actively seeking out the well-being of others. Nobody has ever been more loving than Jesus Christ, right? And if we truly believe he did what he did, it becomes possible for us to love the unlovable because that's what he's done in our sake. But to do that, we have to be able to remember the gospel when it's the furthest thing from our minds. That's where training kicks in. If you can remember the gospel when it's the furthest thing from your mind, then you can love even the unlovable. Joy and peace and patience. A lot of these things, they're, they're grouped together. They're speaking really to the same thing. All of these things, joy, peace, patience, they speak to being able to stay calm in the midst of the storm. Right? Uh, Paul's use of this word in the Greek, patience, can also be translated as long-suffering. And I think that helps us understand what he means, right? Long-suffering means exactly what it sounds like. The ability to suffer for a long time, to be able to remain steadfast in the midst of a lot of suffering. That's really what Paul is getting at with patience. And no one suffered better than Jesus did, right? Who, in the climax of his pain, asked the Father to forgive the very people who were torturing and murdering him. When my identity is in Christ and not in the way my life is going in a certain moment, 
then suddenly I have the ability to choose to be joyful because my identity is rooted in the promises that he's made for me, the promises of life, the promises of freedom from sin and death that I believe he's going to deliver on. So I can choose in those things to be joyful, to have peace, even in the midst of hard times, of whatever life may be throwing at me. Faithfulness and self-control. Jesus and his humanity did not want to go to the cross, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays. He asks the Lord, if it's possible, remove this cup. Let this cup pass from my lips. Don't make me do what I know I have to do. And yet, in that same prayer, what does he pray? He prays, nonetheless, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Here we see the irony of self-control. It's actually when we submit our will to the will of the Lord, to the Spirit, to the Father, that we gain the most self-control over ourselves. Christ calls us to die to our wills, to die to the things we would want. We can ask for them, that's what he does. But ultimately to be okay with the will of the Father. That's what he demonstrates for us, submitting to the will of the Lord. All of these fruit of the Spirit collectively, they're cultivated in the soil of the gospel. The more we reflect on it, the more it will change us, the better fruit we produce. One of my favorite examples in youth ministry of the Spirit working was with this group of guys about five years ago now. I walked with them through high school. They were seniors, and we were on this youth camp, and they had really been growing, and it was a wonderful time for me. I grew a lot being around them and just watching them grow. They were fun guys. They were popular at their high school. And so it was truly a work of the Spirit, what was happening. I mean, they were just hungry. And we were having these awesome dialogues, and it lasted their whole senior year. I mean, they're still, they're coming to the second service today. It's going to be fun to have them there. Uh, But as we were on this trip, it was a massive trip, like 280 students. So there's a lot of people from a lot of places, and a lot of them aren't believers. Uh, It's a really fun trip. tracks a lot of people. And so one of those guys was trying to worship, and he loved worship. It's one of his favorite times. And he was in the back of his mind thinking about these people in this room who were a lot of his friends, but who he had been, been partying with, been hanging out with, right? Kind of before he had really been transformed by the Lord. He'd, he'd spent a lot of time with them, and he just felt like they were a distraction to him. He felt fake, right? He just, for whatever reason, I don't think they were watching him, right? But these are, these are the kinds of kids, they're ca- cracking jokes in the back. They're not engaged at all. And just for whatever reason, they were sort of like a weight on him as he tried to worship because he just knew that they knew what he'd been up to in his past. And so it was tough on him. And then one night he comes into our discussion time, which would happen after worship and happen after the group time. And he's just like radiating. And he shares with us that, you know, he, he was just desperate for this time of worship. And he just prayed and asked the spirit to give him freedom. And in that very moment, he had this experience of all of his fear just being stripped away. And he was able to worship. And I look back on it because he shared it with such an earnestness. It was an experience he was trying to get us in on because it was truly something he didn't fully understand. But what happened is he almost had this out-of-body experience where as he was worshiping and he was just, his fear was stripped away. It was all he could do to just 
worship and feel this joy of the Lord and sing at the top of his lungs. And he had this out-of-body experience where he sort of saw himself in these people behind him and he just prayed, Lord, let them see the joy on my face and want what I have. And so the Holy Spirit performed this incredible transformation where he took this student from being in a place of fear, afraid to worship because of the people around him, to actually this place where he was desperate to witness to those people he was afraid of through the very thing that he was afraid to do. Completely freed him of his fear and replaced it with power. That's the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And you might say it just happened like that in that moment of prayer, but the truth is it happened in the middle of this week where he and all of us were soaking in the teaching. We were walking through the gospel of Luke and the teacher was doing an excellent job. And we were reading, we were listening, right? We were waking up in the morning with daily devotionals that we were doing. We were having this group discussions at night where we were praying together and we were having real dialogue. We were talking about what was going on in our lives. We were asking questions of each other. We were edifying one another. And it was in the midst of all that where he was reminded and encouraged each day of his identity in Christ is in the midst of that, that this transformation took place for him and the spirit gave him freedom. The gospel is something that can become more real and more meaningful to us every single minute of every single day. And that's the real key to change. Every second we can reflect on it, every second we can apply it to our lives, we feed the spirit while simultaneously killing the flesh. Walking by the Spirit is ultimately a walk toward Jesus. So church, let's walk by the Spirit toward Jesus together. Let's cultivate this culture among us where we pray together, we study God's Word together, we do real church community together and believe in the Spirit's power to transform us. Not only us, our relationships, our families, our friends, our communities, our city, our world. That's the power the Holy Spirit has to transform us.